Today's show is brought to you in partnership with GiveSum. GiveSum is a platform that got on my radar last year. I've been watching with anticipation as they built out their solution. What they have built is brilliant. It's an online platform that allows companies who are already giving to seamlessly engage their employees in the experience by allowing them to choose the causes that matter most to them and choosing where the funds are donated. As my listeners know, I believe that corporate giving needs to be a table stakes when it comes to how we as leaders run our companies. And I also know that sometimes those donations and acts of support don't always connect to the people on our teams. GiveSome solves that problem by creating a bridge where you as a leader can now allow your team to select the causes and charities that matter most to them, and then through the platform itself, receive direct feedback on the impact of those funds. Gone is the need for the once a year town hall or a company-wide email to share that what causes the org supported last year. GiveSum allows your team to pick the charities and get direct feedback on the impact the dollars had. One of the best parts, GiveSum does not take a percentage of the donation. 100% of the dollars donated go directly to the charity and to the people who need it the most. GiveSum works with your company and for a set fee, they administer the entire process. If you're already giving, which statistically speaking, you most likely are, visit GiveSum.com and find out how you can get your entire company involved in making a difference for the people who need it most. Hello and a warm collisions YYC. Welcome to my guest this morning, Mr. Al Karim Devani. How are you, Al? Mm. I'm really good. Yeah, thanks for having me, Tyler. Uh, pleasure to have you on, man. I love it. Calgary, we were just joking before we came on. And the first rule of podcasting, don't spend 10 minutes talking about how you know each other because the guests don't care. But we met each other and within a week, we ended up at like a close friend's birthday party together. Like I do love Calgary because I do think that is part of one of our superpowers. One degree of separation and you're running into people, good people that know other good people. So high fives to you on that one. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, what a coincidence. I was like, I'm pretty sure that's you because we only connected over the screen. I'm like, I'm going to go say hello because it looks like him. So, yeah. Yeah, which I really appreciated. It just kind of adds yeah. to it. never ceases to amaze me. So, let's let's dive right into it. Let's jump in the old uh, pitch elevator or the, the what we do elevator. Co founder at Round Square. You've got a bunch of other things going on here, which we'll get into a little bit today, but that's the one that's leading on your LinkedIn. And I'm a professional creeper, so I'm on here. What's a Round <laughs> yeah. Square? What are you guys all about? What do you do? What problem do you solve in the world? And let's launch from here. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, Round Square, I would call us like a city, a city building agency, like, you know, typical, typical definition of what we do is probably more of a developer. And I know nowadays developer, everyone's like, Oh, you're a software developer. It's like, no, I'm a real estate (laughs) developer. And so I always have to be careful that I'm not, I'm not all of a sudden a software engineer or technology guy. Um, (laughs) But, but yeah, no. So um, I'm in the real estate development space. I've been in real estate for over 20 years. My brother and I have been doing this for a very long time. Started kind of, you know, in, in the residential real estate space, um, I I went to university. It was really important for me to do that because no one in my family had ever gone to UC. So I was lucky enough to graduate from the University of Calgary with a Haskane marketing degree. And I thought I wanted to be a lawyer. But after being in school for five years, I realized like I'm an entrepreneur and I I need to get out there and get in this space. And so it's funny, like as soon as I graduated from university, I thought, okay, I just borrowed a bunch of money, uh, paid a bunch of loans and I need to make the ROI on that. So I actually went and got a job at CP rail downtown calgary and i worked there for uh i did the training for three weeks and then just realized like oh my god i can't i can't do this and so it was i felt so bad because i remember i remember going through the entire like intensive training session and then recognizing like 
oh my God, I can't do this. And then feeling so guilty about the fact that I spent three weeks of their time. And, you know, in hindsight, I think that thing should probably be like a weeding effect to get rid of people like me who weren't as committed. But I remember one of the guys telling me the cost of that three weeks was like something enormous, like $40,000. And then I just bailed. And it was like, um, but it wasn't, it wasn't for me. Like I, I had a vision. I, I had always been in real estate. I knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I knew I could kind of contribute more. And so my brother was in the real estate development space, building single family homes for estate families, like way out in Elbow Valley. Um, and then I asked him if he would consider doing stuff in the inner city, which I learned about, you know, through the course of being in university. I used to sit open houses for realtors. I'd never sold a single house in my entire career as a real estate agent, but I would get paid to sit open houses, make feature sheets, do photos. And, and it's funny, like no realtors love sitting open houses. You rarely ever sell anything, but they all had to do them to appease their clients. And so I would end up going and sitting in these open houses and got really exposed to the city of Calgary in every quadrant. Um, and I was able to pay for part of my degree and kind of live and I got paid cash, which was great. So um, it, it was a real like life learning experience for me that I didn't realize, but my brother was building and then I, you know, told him, Hey, let, let's, uh, let's try this inner city thing. And, you know, he was like, yeah, sure. If you're going to do the work for it. And so I did, I basically jumped, you know, neck deep. I was in, in the pit. I was trying to understand excavation and connections and shoring and footing and cribbing and doing all the invoicing out of my basement. And so kind of built our first kind of semi-detached infill, um, back in, I think 2014 under a company called beyond homes. Um, and, you know, back then we were building those things for around 600 aside, 600,000 is what we were selling them for. And then, you know, we, we got to, I think it was around 18 um, ish. And we, we were now selling these things for 1.35. I'd gotten married. I'd met my wife. She was an architect. She transformed the way I had visualized kind of what was possible in housing for a long time. I was passionate about sneakers and art and design, but it was always a hobby for me. And I always kept it very separate in my life. Like I invested in a fashion business with a good friend of mine, Tongue, who is now uh, the leading um, designer at uh, Rennie Champ, with the, which was purchased by Aritzia. And, you know, he was, he was just such an incredible artisan. And so I just like love that side. But my wife really taught me how to like bring that level of passion and design into the business that I was doing. And so, you know, we went out and started building these semi-detached homes, but our pricing went from, you know, 600 aside to 1.3 million aside. I think we had built a home in Britannia around 18 for $3.2 million. And, you know, it was, it was like, wow, like th this should be something we're really proud about. But then I kind of reflected on the house and looked at what we had done. And I just said, like, I don't know if this is why I got into this whole thing. Like, I do love architecture. I do love design. But I, but I was really passionate about the city, about living urban, about the potential of bringing, you know, my friends close to the urban setting who all lived in suburbs. And that got further and further away the more and more our business was, you know, technically doing better. And so Ashton and I sat down and he wasn't working as closely with me. He was more an investor and said, you know, I don't know, like, are we losing the plot again? Like you did this in Elbow Valley where prices escalated, the market crashed, we were serving a very small population of people. And so we created Brown Square 
really with the sole purpose of saying, how do we bring more families and people back to the inner city? And it started with like, you know, primarily families. And so, um, you know, in 2018, I think it was, or I might, might even been sooner, time, I, I lose my time, but um, we said, let's try to put four row houses on a corner um, where technically you were only allowed to put a duplex and went before council. I'm lying. So this was in 15. I'm getting my times right because we've been around for seven years. And Evan Woolley just got elected, who's also now a good pal of mine. But council deliberated for like five hours to go from two to four units. Um, and originally we thought we were going to get it done. Uh, when I had submitted the application, the administration team had refused the application. Calgary Planning Commission had refused the application. Everyone said you shouldn't even go to council because you've already got two refusals. And this is like, I didn't know what was happening. I didn't know what I was doing. Um, go to council. Uh, takes five hours. Evan originally says yes. Comes back after a 15-minute break and says, sorry, man, I'm not going to vote for it. And we lose 8-7. And then she's like, this is embarrassing. We just spent five hours trying to determine if four houses is appropriate here versus two. We have a real problem if we're ever going to meet our goals of you know creating more sustainable, established inner-city neighborhoods or balanced growth. And so that was like a real windfall and a change for us because the city had reached out to us apologized, said, we obviously missed something. We obviously don't see what, what's happening or don't see what you see. Do you mind sitting down with us? And, you know, I spent a bunch of time with this. Yeah, I spent a yeah. bunch of time with the city, came up with this zoning, um, and they, it's called the RCG. And now we've delivered over 150 of those townhomes throughout the city of Calgary. And so that was kind of like the precipice of what Round Square was. And obviously, you know, we've now morphed and transformed to doing kind of mixed-use multifamily building. Um, we just... We just um, launched our tenant launch of our largest building in Winnipeg. Actually, it's a 200 unit development um, with uh, residential. It's got a heritage restoration component in the exchange district. Uh, and so, yeah, it was a three and a half year project and super stoked about it. And then we've done some similar stuff here in the city as well. Very cool. Well, I live in Marta Loop, so I'm kind of in your backyard or you're in my backyard or, both, or right, vice versa. With I know your project right on the corner. Um, I think nobody, you can't miss that project, especially on a sunny day, which we'll talk about. So talk to me a little <laughs> bit about, and let's get into it because living in this neighborhood, I personally hear the other side of, of you know, I see, I see the benefits. I see the densification. I see that now we have wine bars and we have little speakeasies and we have restaurants. And we have everything that's popping up in this neighborhood. So I'm just going to pick on the Marta Loop, kind of South Calgary, Altador, that little pocket. But I also hear that densification complaints and now our back lane is going to have 300 cars versus 10 and my house is now completely shaded because i lost all my son and and those are all kind of me problems if i'm like ah i don't like this is happening in my neighborhood uh, hearing that you guys were so instrumental in contributing or impacting or driving that zoning change forward so kind of let's just have a conversation around the balance because for every person it benefits there's probably somebody i could knock on their door because i've seen the petitions go around my neighborhood that is not a fan of the multi the densification let's just call it that Mm, i'm sure you've encountered this many many times long before i've asked it (laughs) yeah and honestly many have been encountering this even before i uh, you or i have had this conversation as well and you know one of the things that i've been fortunate enough to hear or see stories about is kind of like 
you know, when we talk about truth and re- reconciliation, or we talk about the lands that that we we are now, you know, living off of, we're never ours to begin with. And it's in our best interest to steward those lands, in my mind, in order to honor kind of where they've come from. And so when I think about how do I best steward the land that I've never owned, that I've settled on in somebody else's, and this is somebody else's land, and they have history and connection to that land that neither you or I even know about, but is really important. And it's important that we uncover that. And and, and this is kind of what I've come to understand is like, we can't necessarily move further or into the future unless we actually are willing to unpack how we've arrived to where we've gotten to. And so, you know, that unpacking is so deep and entrenched in so many waves of, 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 of things that have transpired. Like, you know, I, I had the opportunity to listen to Harry Sanders talk about how, um, uh, the original Curry Barracks actually severed the connection from the Satina Nation to the city of Calgary and the Stampede. And they used to actually come down through that way uh, to head down to the Stampede every year. And as soon as the barracks were built, they basically impeded that same history of those folks coming down. And he actually talked about houses on 33rd. There used to be a doctor that the chief was really, really close with and used to stop and kind of hang out and they would have tea and then they would continue their journey onto the Stampede. And so what I would say is like our cities, our lands, our communities are consistently in transition. And there's no reason like change, change is scary. There's no question about it. But but tell me in a moment where you think that we should actually stop change from happening rather than participating in it and finding a way to make it more inclusive and better for everybody. And so, you know, I think about AI right now terrified of AI. I'm terrified of what was going to happen to my daughter. And I could continue to say the real strategy here is to not let them use chat GPT and force them to continue to not use their telephones or write. But I inherently know that that's wrong. I need to, I need to explain to her about how to use those tools and how to make it better. And so what I would tell you is like myself I haven't done a good enough job. The industry hasn't done enough good job. The city hasn't done a good enough job about being proactive about what change has to transpire uh, and how we can make it more inclusive. And so there's so many evolutions that change. When I first started building infill, my neighbor was a guy who's who helped build his house. He was 87 years old after the war with his dad, with his own hands. He smoked every single day on his balcony. He was awesome. Uh, His name was Jerry. And um, (laughs) like, I love Jerry. And he's the guy that I probably still, and folks like him are the folks that I'm most concerned about because they should be the voices that we amplify the most. They should be the ones that we find a way for them to stay in these communities because they're losing the ability and right to live in these communities because folks want to build bigger single family homes that they value as like, you know, look at, look at how this neighborhood, if you were to look at this neighborhood in 20 years, Tyler, and let's say townhomes and multifamily was never a part of it. Can you imagine what percentage of Calgarians would have access to this community? Very low, very, very low. And, mm. and ha- I, I don't know how that's setting us up for success. And so I guess what I'm saying is like, 
I'm, I'm, I'm past the built form. Um, I'm not concerned about necessarily so much about what the buildings look like because to each their own, but how do they add value to our communities and how do they create diversity, giving people opportunities to be here that could have never been here before? Um, and that comes with other constraints like you've talked about. Parking is one that we hear about all of the time. Like, how are people going to move through these communities? And I think, like, this is where we need to work collaboratively to talk to the city to say community and, and industry arm and locked in hand to say we're working together we have solutions we understand the diversity is needed and the tax base is required and this is sustainable but please give us capital to reinvest in our communities mm-hmm. and the city hasn't heard that use case they've heard it on the peripheral so like our suburban growth happens because those guys are really good at at saying why they make sense financially uh, we haven't been able to have those conversations here, and we're still kind of weaving our way through the vitriol because we're building the boat at the sea. Like these conversations should have happened a long time ago, and they've yet to happen. And you're retrofitting an old, <clears throat> you're rebuilding an old car, you're tuning up an old neighborhood, and you're not picking a field and saying, all right, let's architect the perfect community flow based on now what we know with modern science and green spaces and all the things that I've lived in some suburbia and I live inner city now and I would never trade it for the world. But this is a retrofit project to a certain extent. You're not starting with an empty field that you can now be inspired <coughs> and take into, be- into case all the best practices, right? And I think from being involved in this community, listening to you talk and I had an interesting perspective. A friend of mine just moved here from Vancouver and she's like, Oh my God, I love densification. All my neighbors hate it. It's like, okay, why? Why? She goes, because I came from a neighborhood where I could walk to everything that I cared about. I moved to Calgary and it's like, Oh, well shit, I can walk there, but I got to take the car for this. and I got to drive for that. Or ah, that's just a little bit too far. And then, <clears throat> so, and it was just like good rate right, to listen to her perspective. She lives in Kitsilano. So right down in the heart of it. And she's like, Oh my, my neighbors are cursing and I'm celebrating because from where I came from, my quality of life was ultimately higher. And that trade off was, I was willing to have it. We're not good at telling the positive side of the story versus we're really good at complaining and polarizing against the negative. That's just, I think the world we live in right now too. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's most topics, right? Like it's easy to, to pick. Totally. A side we're, we're, get, just picking, yeah. we're, we're just picking one. I can believe, but that, yeah. is, the, but that yeah. is the topic we're picking. <laughs> totally. But you, you mentioned a good point with the 15 minute city. And for a long time, I thought in order for us to win, you know, and get prioritized building in the inner city meant that we should actually um, pick the villain and the villain for me for a long time was suburban <laughs> growth. Like it was an easy target. It's like, yeah. you guys continue to get all the investment. You continue to build out there. You continue to make a boatload of money while we struggle to build three houses, five houses, seven houses, 60 houses. It takes me three years to get a project approved. It takes them less than a year to get 15,000 homes approved. And so rather what I've learned is like, the cities, cities need to have balanced growth. When you think about Calgary as a municipality, we're far more predominantly built out within our suburban neighborhoods. There's more people living in the suburbs than there are within our inner cities. And here's the real stickler for me or what I really love. And I, I should have gave those folks more credit and, and it's due is they're doing a better job at building complete, diverse, accessible, affordable 15 minute cities on the suburbs than we're doing within our inner cities. I I hear you. Yeah. (laughs) And so you think about Westman village, those guys have done an absolutely incredible job of building a 15 minute city of making sure that you could be out there and only need a car once a week. And so, you know, this is why employment is shifting because people are like, wait a second, 
Why do I need to be downtown? And obviously it shifted because of the pandemic and work from home. But now it's like, we don't necessarily need to be within the city's core anymore. We can't even figure out how to house more people closer to the core or families closer to the core. Rather than making them come to us, let's go to them kind of thing. And we're seeing that all over North America where people are picking these campus style, you know, development sites for their offices and then residents are finding a way to live nearby. And so, um, my whole take on this situation is like, it's both, it's not and or, and in order to solve what we're facing today, we need to find ways to build inclusive communities everywhere. That being said, our most sustainable path of development, hands down, I know people love to say that, oh, well, you know, we could build off the grid. Great. You could do all that within the inner city. It is by far the most sustainable development that we possibly can pursue. And so when you think about climate change and you think about how the world is evolving and changing, we need to figure out a way to actually house more people within our established neighborhoods. And I'll give you one more stat. Like people think that established neighborhoods are the ones that are obvious to you, Marta Loop, Hillhurst, Inglewood, Killarney, Ross Carrick, you know, North Glenmore, Lakeview, those are all, but, but established communities are those that are complete and no longer seeing new housing growth technically. So the vast majority of our, of our, of our communities are actually established. And so when we talk about redevelopment within established communities, we're talking about the outer rings, like the communities that were built out that still need to see what their new life cycle or lifespan will look like, or how do we reinvigorate those? And, but, you know, if you looked at the stats, I think like two years ago, 90% of our housing growth, is still happening within like 10 new growth communities. It's, it's, it's profound. So de- uh, in- interesting. If you look at a, uh, I'm just leaving Marta Loop. There isn't a, there isn't a block on this in this community that I don't think there's like one or two construction projects. But oftentimes they're right across the street from my house. I've watched it happen. Stuart and his 50s bungalow. He lived there. I watched him at 80 years old reshingle his own roof from the waste that he got out of the dumpster from the big f off house that got built right beside his. It was like my wife got home one day and she's like, what, what's going on in the dumpster? And all of a sudden these pallets of shingles come flying out and Stuart's in there at 80 doing his, and unfortunately, I think at 85, he reshingled his own roof from waste that they threw away on the multi-million dollar house beside him. But now that house is gone and it's bulldozed. And unfortunately he had to, uh, no, could no longer support himself in, in at home. And there's a house across the street that's 1.5 million aside. <laughs> And to your point, and I really, the gentrification, and I know that's a powerful word, but the affordability of that house is very different than when maybe Stuart got access to it in 1952. <laughs> and, yeah. and, and that's many cycles. But when you think about the communities, when I use, sometimes you take a drive around the city, there's communities out there that you're like, what the, where even am I? What is going on here? And it yeah. does kind of blow your mind when you kind of get in that 15, 20 minute ring outside of the, the city center. Yeah, yeah. And So like, you know, I kind of walked you through a little bit about our career path, but like we've now, we've built commercial small scale development, uh, the general block building, which is one of my favorite in Bridgeland. We've done medical centers that were extremely complex. Um, You know, we've done mixed use multifamily uh, in Martelloup now in Winnipeg. We've done a project with a rooftop garden in Bankview that was 20 units. And then we've also built a ton of middle housing. And I think we're at an inflection point again of saying like, wait a second, like, why isn't more of this middle housing happening? Like, why can't we seem to find more ways to produce housing that could be multi-generational for, for families and for guys like Stuart and Jerry. And so, you know, we're, we're, I'm at a place now where it's like, okay, 
I can continue to try to solve the problem by building it out myself and, you know, building a real estate portfolio, owning it and trying to create affordability and doing whatever. But like, for me, that's not enough. And, and this is what I've recognized is like, I need to figure out a way to be an advocate and a leader to help unlock this housing typology at scale across Canada and quite frankly, North America. And what's beautiful about the model that we're talking about, Tyler, is like, we're going to fo- we're going to forego parking. Uh, we're going to need advocates to figure out how to get infrastructure to support that for, forego of, uh, of of parking from our cities. Um, but our model now, like, is a is a model where we could take you know four fully accessible at grade units and then build four family units on top and three bedroom houses, townhomes, and th- that's to me like holy. Why don't we have more of that? Like, why can't my grandma live below me in her own suite that's can, you know, yep. uh, that, that I live on top? And so that's the opportunity that we're seeing. And it's, the, and we're still kind of discovering this form and trying to figure out how to bring it to the market. How do we help other cities figure it out? Other developers figure it out. Uh, because to me, that's when we'll see real success is like when we can visually connect those folks who are so nervous about, listen, We're going to find a way for your grandma to stay in the community, to live amongst the people rather than shipping her to a home or having her leave this community because she can't afford to be in it. Uh, And we're also going to find a way to bring your kids back into this community. Like your children will not be able to afford to live in these communities if we continue to build them as single family homes, because they will, there's, there's at, those things are going to stay up forever. As soon as you put two, $3 million into a single family home, like it's it's not coming down in 20 years. No, for sure. Yeah. 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 So we lose that opportunity to create diverse communities. And so I, it's just like, we have to start connecting the dots. No one's done a good enough job. We're all polarized. Like we've talked about because we're in the midst of fight or flight in these applications, but we're not able to pause and kind of like have a broader conversation. Are you seeing a demand or like, I've, I'm just, as you're talking, I'm thinking about my, I have certain friends that got rid of their house, got a bigger house so that their mom could, or their brother who had challenges to move in with them. And my business partner just bought a small acreage with the idea that his parents are going to build on top of the garage, the lane homes, that type of thing. Also, we work uh, at the agency, we work with a, a residential builder here, and they talk a lot about the new Canadian market coming in where they're used to multi-generations in one home. That's not even a that's not we like here we have this no i must have my 4000 square feet and i will share with m- myself and my cat like that that's a very privileged <laughs> perspective to have and are you seeing that also being contributed to with a lot of influx of new canadians with a different mindset and philosophy around this ownership and square footage mindset that sometimes we have if, if we've been yeah. raised in this culture it's funny cuz like um i was sitting down with my 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 mentor business coach yesterday and the one thing he said to me is like culture is not actually meant to break or be changed. Like culture is actually static. It's meant to stay the same. And so when you talk about creating inflections in culture, it takes a, a lot of work. Like you have to really, you much really easier to, to ride the wave of culture than to try to create a new f- inflection. I think you're, uh, it's funny when yeah. you're building a brand, we talk about that, like what is culturally going on that it can be relevant to you and your value proposition because rarely do you have the impact, the ability, or the funds to even to to, imp, to change that. <laughs> yeah, and maybe, maybe it's, it's like we we shouldn't control the weather either. We'd probably mess it up. Let's be blunt. <laughs> yeah, you're right. And so it, you know, it's funny you just said that too because we we work with an agency um, 
too, uh, daughter, uh, and mm-hmm. Steph is one of my favorite people. She's a copywriter there. And she talks about like how you have to actually see what's happening in the universe when you're creating something exactly what you just said. And that really resonated. She talked about Nike and running and, and how the, the impetus of those coming together is what Phil saw that a lot of people didn't see. And he was able to latch onto a movement that was going to go regardless of him or not. And so yeah, that's a great saw example. The cult- mm-hmm. Yeah. I saw the culture forming said, I can contribute in a meaningful way and then we can continue to do great work and, and really revolutionize this into something else and i just watched the movie and to see them think that basketball was nothing oh that movie that, that, wasn't that movie yeah. so good like a rundown oh, the 80s God. rabbit hole like that the first five minute <laughs> montage of all the 80s references was amazing just for that alone <laughs> so good i, lo- I love his tracksuits because I, I remember wearing the tracksuits as a kid i was like i love oh, for sure and his, fil- his fluorescent yeah. running out will do it was so good anyways if you haven't watched <laughs> yeah, the movie air yeah. go watch it it's well acted well, i had a great story and for so many good. of us who are a bit older, uh, very relatable. And I'm like, I remember that. I remember that. I remember that. It was very cool. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, and so I guess like what, what I was trying to say about the culture is like, if we go back, like go back and unpack, like what, what, where did the North American market kind of identify that single family homes were important to us? Hmm. Uh, at what point in history did this arrive? Um, and it actually is like, unfortunately, but fortunately, as we kind of transition to our future is like single family zoning came from racialized zoning historically. And so there was a famous planner in North America. His name's Harlan Bartholomew. He was the first urban planner in North America who basically identified that there was an influx of migrants coming. Um, White people didn't want to live around very like in his district. It said no Chinese, no Negroes, no, no, these people. Um, And that's how the zones were originally written. And then during the civil rights, he recognized like can't write this into it anymore. But those type of people like to live in a different housing form category than what we are living in today here in these bigger single family homes or how we like to live independently. So if we call them single family zones and don't allow for multi-generational living or people to live close together, they won't be able to live near us anyways. And so the whole concept of zoning was actually created to keep us apart, not together. And so when you talk about what is the cultural references that we are using that have gotten us to where we are today, it's so deeply rooted in, in who, who we are in North America as people. And I say we because it's also the systems that we are raised in. When I go back to India with my family, man, like we're all in like a condo of a 500 700 square feet sleep, sleeping on futons like their their parents live with their kids and it's like <laughs> that 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 sense of connection is like what i aspire to contribute to here and i really believe like you look at the scandinavian regions they're the same way we keep our families close we keep people close we prioritize connection um and so you know I, what I would say is like the movement is changing. Like people are very concerned about, you know, inclusivity, about racial segregation, about these things that historically were not good for us and recognizing that we need to honor, unpack those in order to move forward. And so I am seeing that shift starting to transpire. There's no question. Um, And we are seeing so many more builders and developers, even out in the suburbs, think about like, 
wait a second, I think I think grandma's going to live with these folks for a while. What would that look like? And how would we include that in our housing form? And I think it's brilliant. Like, if, if I could tell you, like, I had one objective, it's like, how do I help create more access and affordability to these communities? Uh, and how do I keep our seniors, you know, living up with us for longer? And unfortunately, both my parents have passed. And um, but I still feel like, you know, if, if I had them around, that would be a, a huge driver for me. I really appreciate the anthropological approach of be careful with what you believe or what you hold true because you don't always know where it came from. And there's so many things that we treat as gospel in our society. And when you dig back, you're like, what the hell is going on? I listened to something recently about why you know doctors go through the brutal like, no-sleep regime of being indoctrinated. And it tracked all the way back to a doctor at Boston General in the 1880s who believed that sleep was a waste of time. It has been proven that he was a cocaine addict. And then he used cocaine on shift to not sleep because that's just what he did. And we still follow standards. And I was like, wow, how effed up is... And that's just one thing that hit me recently. I was uh, Matthew Walker, Why We Sleep. Great book. Mm-hmm. Uh, you and I were chatting about fitness and sleep is high on the list of things to, take, to use to take care of yourself. But some of the things that we abuse ourselves with around sleep in our society were created at a time for just misplaced reasons but now we hold them as we hold them as gospel and we will argue with them at a dinner table but we don't even really know what we're arguing back to your original what is the foundation of the single family's zoning like that's really powerful i really appreciate the deep dive and the 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 thinking about the thinking of how we even got here right that's so powerful Mm -hmm. for sure and i mean like there's so there's so many things that we get rooted in like i said and fear the change without being willing to dive deeper and understand like okay well if we were to follow that path or play that out, what is our future? If we were to follow this path and pay that out, how could we see ourselves living? Uh, and so I think about this specifically as well when I think about parking and vehicles and cars. Like you, you have to understand that probably the most inefficient, most unsustainable thing that we can build today is that is a park a parkade below grade. <laughs> it is the most expensive. It is all concrete. And today, I haven't yet to see good examples of adaptive reuse of parking. Um, and and in Alberta, like I met with the town in Alberta, uh, I won't I won't name drop them, but who you know was like our car usage is extremely high, um, and the highest the highest used vehicle in this region is a Ford F one fifty. And I said, if you want to design a parkade to house. Ford F-150s at their new size with sweet pass, turning radius, parking stalls have to be oversized. You are going to be the most expensive parkade structure and, 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 and in correlation housing uh, in Alberta. And you're in, a, you're in a population of like, you know, a tenth of Calgary. Like you cannot build that for your people. And, and it kind of led me to say our job as professionals in this industry is to lead people. Like we have to be able to lead people. Our politicians are voted to lead us, not to get stuck about where we are. It's to take those leaps, to take those, you know, transformational change that needs to take place in leadership for us to get to where we need to go. And so, you know, I, I seen a planner in Calgary who wrote, we do a better job and broke down the statistics at housing vehicles than we do housing people. <laughs> if you were to take all of the cars that we house today and house those with people, we probably wouldn't have the crisis we have today. And then pe- the next question would be like, well, yeah, I'll, where does everybody park? Well, you know what makes people take public transit more, Tyler? Traffic. 
<laughs> and so I know no one wants it, but it's actually the problem. You actually need to create enough agita enough that someone pain, will enough, say, enough yeah. pain and discomfort. I hear, I hear. Yeah, it. you got to prioritize other modes of transportation for people to say that is the best option. So as much as we all hate it, I hate it, you hate it, Toronto hates it. Part of that is like. Let's build the right infrastructure for people, particularly those that are most vulnerable, and invest in that infrastructure, like bikes. You know, there's there's so many things that are happening today that that could actually allow for diverse commutes, walking, better walking, pedestrian realms. We don't have those. Like we're we're we're, we're just like we're not willing to take that form of leadership, and that's where I get a little bit frustrated. And you know, I, I've told this story before. Um, my mom used to ride her bike 40 minutes every single day when she lived in India to get to school and back to her town. When she moved to Canada, I think I saw my mom on a bike once. Which the health implicate, like there's so many things that cascade down from that that aren't just a mode of transportation, right? When it comes to, you know, then we go to the gym for an hour, but yet we sit on a tra- in our car for an hour. Like it's an interesting kind of dichotomy. It's so challenging. Like humans are notoriously, and there's lots of documentation around that, uh, the ability to live and look at the future. You talk about the ability to look out and say, okay, well, yeah, this densification in my neighborhood is going to contribute to all these benefits. Yeah, but God damn it, by parking. And we see the pain and we see the right, right in front of our nose. And I'm not, and I'm not pointing fingers or I think we all are guilty of it from time to time. It takes a lot of pause, deep breath and go, okay, if I look out five years now, I love what you said, the sustainability of an underground parking garage. But I'm not looking to that when it's Tuesday and it's snowing and I'm really happy to park inside. Like there's a balance of round pain, pleasure and future pacing, which I think humans like oftentimes in a blanket statement are notoriously challenged to think why we're sometimes bad savers, why we overindulge today. Like, you know, the 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 the, the uh, delayed gratification. What is it? The marshmallow test where, you know, yeah. if you wait, we suck at that <laughs> a lot of the time. And a lot of what I'm hearing you talk about, which I really appreciate the role you're playing of like. Yeah, we might say things will make you uncomfortable. It's because we're taking the time as part of our business model and our value prop to think about these future states. That's not an easy mantle to carry sometimes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How how do you stay motivated? How do you stay motivated in the face of I would guess is a lot of friction from time to time when you're the ones introducing the new the new ideas. It's just a broad human, but yet entrepreneur, yet business statement. I'll take question at the same time. Yeah, you're right. And you know, I obviously I struggle from this the same thing, right? And 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 what what I've learned is like this is, this is a process. Like I, the, the thing is, is like, I'm not necessarily as rooted in the outcome as I am the process. And so what, what, what I would okay. say is like, I am committed to a process, a system, and, um, that's what motivates me. And so th- this whole thing is like, I will stay, I will stay committed to this because I truly believe it's what, what will make a difference. And, um, We'll get there. It's kind of how I see it. Like, you know, when, when you want to build a championship caliber team, you don't, you don't build it with saying that, you know, this is happening <laughs> this year. It's like, it's going to happen over the course of how many years. And it's funny. I was listening to Phil Jackson talk and it's like, um, he was talking to Rick Rubin on a podcast and he mentioned like the state of flow, um, and how, you know, one year he felt that they had all the pieces with the Lakers, everything they could have possibly have wanted. But what they missed was the flow. And he says, as soon as you don't have the flow state, nothing matters. And it was like, wow, that was powerful. Like it blew, it blew me back a bit. Like, and, and it actually, 
you know, I'm, I'm a fan of sports. I love, I love the, the inversion into life and how those two kind of come together. And um, one of the things I, I didn't know about Phil was just how, how, um, how philosophical and, and he was about the, his approach is, is he, he, he believed in things at a, at a higher level, but then he also was just so rooted in fundamentals and process. And he said, you know, irrespective of, of where things end up, if we followed our process, that's, that's how we win. Um, and, you know, he talks about the conversation with Jordan where he says, listen, Michael, like, you're not getting 40 anymore. You're not getting the possession everything every every minute because we need to distribute the ball in order to actually win a championship. And you guys have tried it your way for a long time and it hasn't worked. And that was his first conversation with him as a head coach. And so just the things that he said were just so, so transformational for me. You know, he's like, I had never asked Michael Jordan once for an autograph, for a photo. I never brought my kids in because I didn't ever want to break the coach-player relationship. I needed to honor that in order for us to actually move. And so that's what I did. And and I knew that he was consistently bombarded by people for these things. And I wanted him to know that when he met me, that I would be this constant for him. And I think, you know, those are the things that motivate me to say, I'm not necessarily, you know, I do future pace. I know where I want to go, but I'm never disappointed about the highs and lows as we move to these things. And, and I want to stay consistent in, in our ideology in terms of how we feel like we get there. I really appreciate your transparency and just willingness to share and even the cons like words like flow and phil- 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 being philosophical and sometimes get pushed out of the business world. No, I'm in where we build buildings and we run plans and we execute, but you do it on top of a philosophy, on top of a set of beliefs and a way of doing it. And you look at some of the best architecture in the world, speak to your wife, the architect, you walk in, uh, I'm about to head to Spain here in a week. So I'm pumped because mm. I know I'm going to have moments where I'm just going to be like, I'm going to literally be speechless because somebody had a philosophy and they probably took 10 years to build the thing I'm going to see. They didn't plow it up overnight and they generations of fathers and sons and worked on that building or worked on that thing that I'm going to see. But yet we live in this world of now, 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 and I've got a work plan. I got to meet my milestones. But behind a lot of that architecture that really blows you away, there was a deep rooted philosophy of what they were trying to accomplish. Sometimes I think it's easy to get that pushed aside in our very linear, analytical, engineering driven world that we live in. No disrespect. I love what it's created. But sometimes it's easy to leave that other piece out and you end up with buildings that don't have any soul. <laughs> totally, totally. And then, and then, like, you know, and I hear this all the time. It's like, oh, your buildings suck. And, you know, we're going to talk about the Marta Loop one or that building sucks or this building sucks. And I did that for a long time, me too, because it's easy to villainize people. But it's like, I don't, I don't know what the process was for that person to get to where they did. And ultimately, like, we're desperate for housing today and, and the constraints are getting more and more challenging, whether it be zoning yeah. costs, interest rates, uh, shortage of labor. Like there are so many things that are putting pressure onto providing housing for folks. And so I'm at a place today where it's like, we need to get better alignment, better cohesiveness in order to get better outcomes. And until we do, we're just going to continue to be dissatisfied with some of the outcomes that we're facing because we're never going to feel like we were heard. And, and so, you know, I, I, again, this is about backing up before we even start. And I don't, I don't technically need to produce any more housing myself, to be honest. Like I want to support others, whether that be municipalities, developers, indigenous folks, non-for-profits, and to helping them solve their problems about what are the trouble that they're facing in order to deliver more housing. And I can guarantee you it's going to end up with like, we struggle with the communities or the people or the politicians or the administrations. And so, you know, I'm really dedicated to finding a way to contribute, you know, in in that way. And, and, you know, 
I'm human too, Tyler. Like, I, I lose, I lose focus. Like I lose, I lose motivation sometimes. I make mistakes. Our projects are not always the way that I thought they were going to be. But one thing I would tell you is like, I want to get better. I'm continuously learning. Uh, I'm trying to change my paradigms. I'm trying not to be stuck in in, in one place for far too long and really never trying to let my ego dominate these conversations. And so, you know, I could be lost in the victim, you know, villain hero triangle forever in my life and say, oh, like this happened to me. It was an outside force. Or I could be like, I'm the bad guy. I got to try to fix this. Or I could say, I'm trying to save everybody. And it's like, (laughs) I kind of just don't want to play that anymore. And it's just like, I'm not going to play that game. I'm not going to be any of those for you folks. Uh, I'm going to try to do great work uh, that's meaningful, that I think will make a difference. And, and you know, you hit it on the head when you talked about going to Spain. It's like it took six generations of bricklayers to produce that 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 church. Uh, the, the, the person that started it knew that they would never see it out or finish it or complete it. That That is, that is what we need. We need more people that are committed to things like that at an artisan level uh, that are just deeply connected and, and are, are more rooted in the process than the outcome. I really appreciate that. Such a, um, I see private industry as such a big player there. Unfortunately, our government and our like the cycles are so short and how do you get that longer term vision where, you know, the, it's such an interesting dichotomy because you're hand in hand with those decision makers, but yet you've probably now seen, well, you're on your second, certainly from Calgary's perspective, and then you'll be on a third and a fourth. Thoughts on from a private business versus where, where's the line? Because you're right, we all are in it together. But yet, unfortunately, some of the decision makers that might be fully on board with your strategy might not make it through the next election. Yeah. And But yet the private businesses will often continue. The good ones definitely stick around and they and they grow and they morph and they change and they learn. You know, I reserve the right to be different tomorrow because I learned something today that I didn't know yesterday. How's that balance for you or just maybe philosophically, how do you see that juggling between the role that government plays versus private sector when it comes to what are these are 50 year 100 year challenges we're trying to overcome not next not next quarter right (laughs) yeah yeah no and you're right like i've been through um one two two this will be my third like um city city council and and uh, now we've been through a few obviously uh municipal sorry provincial changes and then but but i guess like I'm I'm agnostic. I have my own views of 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 political, you know, where I lean and what I think. But outside of like the color, or if I'm left or right, it's just like I have values that we're rooted in. And regardless of where you are on on your political scheme, it's like I don't care. Like housing is a human right to me. Like we need to find <laughs> a way to house people. I don't care if you're on the left or the right. And we saw that happen with this housing. Well, sh- 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 shelter is one of the basic human needs for a reason, right? It's very real. Like some yeah, form like, of shelter. You can't build a strong foundation as a family without housing. A roof over your head is what I believe. And so my goal is to figure out how to make sure everybody gets a roof over their head and how I can contribute to that. Um, and so the way the waves of politicians are just again they're they're part of the process. It's it, th- those people are going to do their job and do what's in the best interest of Calgarian. And if we can find commonality and rally around, why are you here? You know, wh- why are there public civ- civil servants committed to those jobs even though they don't get paid enough to do them? Whether they're teachers, you know, people that work in the city, uh, you know, any anybody who is doing public good, I feel like never gets 
compensated enough to do that work. So they're connected to a deeper rooted mission is how I believe. And you're always going to have bad players and whatever people might just be, you know, checking in, checking out. But I, I truly believe that it's about finding that commonality for me, it's about people. When we talk about housing, it has to be about people uh, and what are the challenges we're going to face and how are we going to solve them together. And so I don't agree with a lot of the folks that are, you know, have different view sets, whether it comes to, you know, transit infrastructure, like you could hear, I'm, I'm, I'm passionate, I'm deeply passionate about affordable housing. I don't see a lot of momentum on that. And so, you know, these are things that we'll continue to work on and, and, and we'll pick a stream and, you know, stay with it and be consistent and then learn as we kind of go through this, like, I, like I told you, Tyler, I make mistakes all the time, you know, and, and and I think it's a matter of just acknowledging that 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 those are things that, you know, I, I can do a better job at. And one of the places that, you know, we talk a lot about is like I feel uh, I have an obligation to these folks who live in these communities, whether and they're in a three million dollar home or a five hundred thousand dollar home. Sometimes I get lost in having more sympathy for one or the other, but I, but I recognize that they're both deeply connected to these communities and we need to figure out a way to, yep. to make this work. I appreciate that perspective, not judging it or categorizing it. Like the, re- it's it's hard because as humans we tend to categorize and we put things in buckets. And this is a this is a good bucket, and then we throw good or bad on top of it, which is even more problematic. Uh, kind of maybe stating the obvious, we've already talked about affordable housing. We've already talked about like what I would say is kind of in a crisis situation in Calgary right now when it comes to. I know anybody who's looking to rent a home or looking to get in. I had a friend who just got they didn't get evicted, but it's like oh hey we're we're on month to month, and you got through you got a month to be out. And they were in that five to six hundred thousand dollar range, and they struggled to find a house. And they were like, "We want to fix our upper." I see some of the project- predictions and the forecasts around population growth in Calgary between now and like twenty twenty six. Like it's a pretty steady up and up and up and to the right. Are we just is like? It doesn't feel like we can solve it fast enough because we're already back on our hind feet. They're like we're going to use sports. We're back on our heels. The ball just came at us and went right by. What do you see in the next three to five years? And I don't want to be negative, but I want to be realistic around what we're facing, specifically in, in Calgary or Southern Alberta. Yeah. So I think it's like, you know, um, you got to lift where you stand, acknowledge where we are today. Um, and then I think it's like, how do we take actions uh, that are going to support us in future pacing to getting us where we need to be? Uh, and unless we can think about the end in mind, um, you know, I think about, we got to be proactive. We have to find win-wins and we have to think about the end in mind. And so that's what I think about when I think about housing is like, there is no silver bullet. As much as people try yeah. to say, like, if we do this, it's like, no, no, there's no way. This is such a complex It's too problem. complex. It's too complex to oversimplify it with a one answer. I hear you. There is so many levels of, of housing that we require. Like, um, I'm, I was lucky enough to uh, join Calgary Housing Corp company uh yesterday i just actually got announced that joining the board uh there and so you know they nice. serve 20 27 000 calgarians their average rents are from 350 dollars to 750 dollars a month which is you know extremely low and they have five thousand people on the waiting list they get 550 new applications per month they are now tasked with trying to figure out how to create more but I could tell you, like, the operating cost on a unit is probably $500 a month. Just yeah. the operating cost alone, let, let, let alone anything else. And so we, we have this deep need for a deep market. One in, one in five Calgarians need access to those, that type of housing. So when people say this is not a me problem, it, it is a me problem. One Look in around. Five. One in five of us need need access to housing affordability support. So, and that number is only growing today. So 
we, we, this, this problem for me is all of our issue. Um, we need to actually approach it as such. We need better communication transparency around it. Uh, I'm not going to pick on the arena. I, I, I love the flames. I deeply want them to stay. They have to find a way to get that deal done. But when you hear about hundreds of millions of dollars going towards supporting a facility that may or may not pay back and qualitatively, it's just going to be transformational for our city. So I'm 100% supportive of it. But what I would say to you is like, when was the last time you heard that the city of Calgary was going to give $500 million to the affordable housing crisis in order to help solve some of the problems that we're facing? And what would it take? I have not heard that as of late. (laughs) Yeah. And what would it take for us to get that approved for, for Calgarians to really feel like this is a problem that we're all facing? And Again, you know, folks will, will use politic, po- political, politicize this to say, well, you know, I'm a capitalist. I believe everyone in Canada can make their own way and find their own way and do their own thing. And it's like, sure, you could say that. But like people are migrating to our country because there's countries that are in turmoil that they need access to different opportunities. And so if we have them come here, but we can't support them or we can't support the Calgarians that are already here, we have a massive issue. And so, um, you know, my parents were supported through, through the community that we are in the Ismaili community. If it wasn't for that community, they would have never gotten on their feet. Uh, and that's because that community works together. I am, uh, I am, you know, have so much gratitude for that. And so, I want to help others who are here who need that support. And we need to find a way to do that collectively in order to solve this housing thing we're in. I really appreciate it. We started with community. We circled all the way around and you ended with, you know, commu- and being, I've been fortunate enough to be involved with the Smiley community over the years through our good mutual friends and obviously men to see a community. I grew up in a small rural town in Southern Quebec. Community was just part of survival. Everybody helped everybody. It was just like that. And, you know, I've I, it, like everything, sometimes it comes full circle and going back to like knowing your neighbors, helping your neighbors, supporting each other. I don't want to sound all kumbaya at the end, but it's not wrong. <laughs> it's not wrong. Yeah. It's not uh, wrong. I mean, like, my mom, my mom, uh, my mom and dad didn't come over with like, you know, they, they didn't speak English. They didn't have a high school education. They were part of that um, generation that kind of moved to Africa early. They actually went there relatively late. My, most of my family is still back in India. Um, but my mom's story was profound. Like she came with her firstborn who had cancer, who passed away when he was five, when she was here, she learned how to speak English watching soap operas and I used to watch general hospital with my mom for like 30 years. And, and I I don't really think it was about the content, but it was like, that's what taught her how to use the transit system, how to move around, how to get around. Um, and, And my mom was so, so rooted in community and giving back. And I don't think it was just about the smiley community. And so, you know, she was lucky to find catering. She never cooked back home. Uh, she wasn't like the one that was providing for the family. She was, she was kind of a badass. Like she would hang out with her brothers and they would go venture off and she would always get in trouble for that. But like, you know, here she learned how to like cook and, and she leveraged like the ability to feed people as the thing that mattered the most. And in, in the community, they call it Siva and it's something that's like really rooted in me. It's like, if we can continue to lift up others, like our lives will be okay one way or another. And so, um, you know, my, my goal, like my mom is I've stumbled on housing. I'm not an expert. I really don't know much more than the next person beside me. I've just been lucky enough to have some experiences that I want to figure out now how I can use those experiences to support others.
I love it. And I really appreciate like where, where the values have come from. Sounds pretty clear when I hear you tell your story about, uh, you know, community and the importance and why you've got such a deep rooted passion, because these things are hard. These problems are big. And if you don't have a passion for it, you'll get burnt out really quick. And I certainly, like you said, and you're very honest, it's a roller coaster. Some days, yeah, I'm the hero. Other days, the villain. But, you know, how do you not play that game while still just going like, this is important and yeah, it's hard and doesn't matter. I'm going to get up every day and go and go for it. And, you know, reading your website, I described your newsletter. So your philosophy, your voice, the way it comes through, the way you articulate it, it shows up. So I was really excited to kind of, you know, I can read your website or I can talk to you. I always prefer to talk to you. <laughs> I like yeah. to go direct to the source, but I love what you guys are doing. And more importantly, I really love the philosophy and how quick you were to share it and the vulnerability around your, around your story. And yeah, we don't have it all figured out, but we're working in a direction and it's values-based. So we will figure it out one way or another. hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah, man. And I, I really appreciate you having me on. And I, I think I said this to you even before we met, like I, I love how you're amplifying voices for folks. Thank you, I think it, Thanks. It, it, it's, it's such a, I know it, it's a huge toll. You do so much good work and it, it means a lot to me to see other people on this platform and getting an opportunity to share their stories. Cause I think it just takes, you know, one of those to really set someone, someone else in a path that, that they would not have been on. So Keep it up, man. You're, you're, you're crushing it. And I know it, it does huge things for this community. Oh, thanks, man. I appreciate it so much. Just to hear you say that. Like when someone like says, I listened to your podcast and then I did that, or I looked up that, or I got curious about something. I'm like, nailed it. Totally worth it right there. That's all I needed. That's great. Just give somebody an idea to go, huh? Never thought about that that way. And therefore what happens next? That's the, that's the spark of an idea. What's the best way, obviously around square R and D sqr.ca if you guys want to check out the website it's great you got a lot of good information sign up for the newsletter i got the first one and it was like your philosophy just laid out really clearly which as a marketer and a communicator i really appreciate it so well done on that kudos to your agency but if someone <laughs> wants to re- if someone wants to reach out to you because there's a million yeah. ways to get a hold of I, you're a guy who's passionate about what he's passionate about if anybody wants to have a chat is there a preferred do you have a preferred uh, you know what i, I talk i talk a lot of trash on twitter and i, and I generally <laughs> respond to my dm so if you want to hear if you want to hear more of the the, the, the crap that i'm talking about uh, I'm, 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 you can find me on Twitter and I'll be talking a bunch of trash and arguing with people and, and, and also sharing, uh, honestly, nice. like for, for cool, me, man. that's the, the one platform I've, I've gotten used to using. So yeah, hit me up on Twitter and uh, yeah, let's connect. I love it. There's a million ways to communicate, but we all tend to have a, pre- a preference of a, of a channel. So I love it. I've, I'm not a big Twitter guy, but I'm going to go because I just want to get some of your trash talking. I love that. I love it. <laughs> a little down yeah. before you get on the court. And uh, there's lots of sports <laughs> analogies all over the place. For sure. It was an absolute pleasure getting to know you. I, I love that our worlds have crossed already. And now we've uh, now we've become friends and we've got to have a, have, have a good chance. So I look forward to being the first of many conversations, my friend. Hmm. Thank you. 